Hey guys, it's Briars. Just want to tell you what's going on down at uh, Meltdown Comics in Hollywood. We got Meltthology. Meltthology is a monthly comics jam at Meltdown every third Tuesday of the month. Here's how it works. Show up at the Melt at 7 p.m. and draw a page of whatever you want. At 9.30 p.m., we'll collect all of the art and $3 for printing costs. When you come to the next month's comics jam, you'll get a zine with everyone's contributions inside. There is no set theme, and all skill levels are welcome. Last but not least, Meltthology contributors get 10% off their Meltdown purchase on the night of the event. Go to at Meltthology on Twitter or Facebook if you have any specific questions. Ask for Chuck, and that is at Melt underscore Thology. Welcome back to Pod Sequentialism. I'm your host, Matt Kennedy, recording live at Meltdown Comics and Collectibles. There's always stuff going on in here, so if you hear any kind of strange noise in the background, it's because all hell is breaking loose at the Nerdist. Um, I want to give a a big shout-out really quickly to uh, our in-house producer and audio engineer, Mason Booker, who's been really helping out with um, with not just this podcast, but uh, pretty much every podcast here at the Meltcast. So uh, I want to give a, a big hey to Mason. How are you doing today? Hey, how's it going? Thanks. Very, yeah. very well. Very well. So um, the, the topic for today's show is going to be comic art as fine art. And I'm, I'm not sure how many of you know, I am the, the gallery director at La Luz de Jesus Gallery in Los Angeles, which is considered one of the seminal art galleries to bring underground comic book art forward as fine art. We gave very early shows in the 1980s to Robert Williams. S. Clay Wilson, Robert Crumb, Victor Moscoso, Spain Rodriguez, um, and a lot of the Zap comic book artists. And then uh, we kind of broadened out. We've shown uh, Kenny Scharf and some very interesting fine artists who may qualify as blue chip artists these days. And then uh, brought it forward through the, the poster art movement and gave Frank Kozik his first show and people like Coop who did the Devil Girl stuff and the Piz and they did a lot of the Jabberjaw posters kind of really kicked off the second wave of silk screening. And that's important because of if you recall the pop art movement in its uh, grand glory, what really launched them was the use of silk screen and the exaggerated presence of printed colored dots. And the two most prolific of those fine artists from the 1960s were, of course, Andy Warhol and Roy Lichtenstein. Now, last year at Christie's, there was an auction in which three Andy Warhol paintings broke all records for previous Andy Warhol sales. And there was a very large diptych of a car crash that went for, if I'm not mistaken, $65 million. This is a silkscreen. That's amazing. Yeah, this is uh, this is very high pricing, and routinely pieces by Roy Lichtenstein go for in the single digit millions and the tens of millions. And I'm sure that you're going to see a sharp rise with the rise of Andy Warhol over this past year. Now, what many people are sort of generally aware of, but not specifically aware of, is how these artists used appropriation to create their art form. They didn't make their own images. They made kind of crude um, 
copies of existing comic art panels. Are you basically saying plagiarism? Yes, it's it's basically okay, plagiarism. Okay, I got you. Okay. Yes, yes. <laughs> and uh, I think by today's standards, there would be no question. It would absolutely qualify as plagiarism. I can give you at least 10 counts of artistic plagiarism that were leveled against Jeff Koons. Um, there were at least seven, maybe maybe as many as 11 lawsuits against Jamie and Hearst. Most of these have been settled out of court. In the recent maybe month, month and a half, uh, there's been a couple of street artists who have sued high fashion labels for implementing their specific tags into their couture high fashion um, costuming and, and runway stuff. Oh, like on the clothing? Yes, directly on the clothing. Interesting. There was a Katy Perry... Um, red carpet thing <laughs> yeah. and uh she was wearing one of these um appropriated images for a um oh which designer was it he does the the adidas with the wings i don't know it'll come to me okay but um a major gaffe and machino was the um the clothing design that huh. that made the clothing so these lawsuits are becoming more common, and whereas before it was kind of a given that the artist being ripped off, uh, there was an artist who was ripped off by Starbucks. They had actually what? contacted her to create art for them. The logo? Uh, no, uh, esoteric oh, kind okay. of like oh, decorative right. wear. Like oh, they, like they do, on the walls or whatever. Or even on cups okay. and stuff for like sure. specific locations. They often hire regional artists to do the, the regional design. Mm -hmm. So they contacted this, this particular female artist, and didn't go with her design when she quoted them her price and they kind of just had somebody do a very similar version of what she had done her lawsuit is still pending it's been going on for quite a while and um the That's... fear was that it would be dismissed yeah because that happens so often oh sure but because it's still going on there's a belief that the current attitude towards intellectual copyright of art is starting to change. But every time there's a good thing, there's a bad ruling. Mm. So Richard Prince, who is very famous for having taken the old Marlboro Man ads from the 1970s, and he worked in, a, um, I think he worked at BBDO, but one of the larger ad agencies, um, he worked in a, I think a filing department. He would have access to all these great original images. So he would take pictures of the images and then blow them up and appropriate them, and it was now elevated to fine art. Yeah, isn't that that's the deal, right? Like you, you transform what was once uh, corporate into art, right? Now the argument is, how much has he transformed it? Mm. So how much of his hand was in his piece, say, as opposed to the previous piece? And he got into a big stink. His first big controversy, and this may predate the Cowboys, I'm not sure, it's, it's in the same era, was the famous shot of Brooke Shields that was published in Playboy magazine, or um, was it in Playboy or was it in Penthouse? I think it might have been in Penthouse, of her from the movie Pretty Baby. And she's, of course, underage and naked. Oh, yeah, right. And so it was a cause of huge controversy. Uh, Susan Sarandon. Yes, yeah, yes, gotcha. in the Louis Malle film. Right, right. And um, she plays a girl who grows up in this in this brothel in, in New Orleans. Brothel in brothel in Louisiana. It was, uh, it was based on a real events. Yes. Uh, they, had a, they had underage prostitution in the area. It was, it was called uh, Sugar Town or something like that. 
Yeah, yeah. Good recall. Yeah. Very good recall. Sorry, yeah. This is completely unrehearsed, everybody. No, so no, the, no reason that I know that. <laughs> <laughs> the fact that Mason has, has, has pulled this out is, is, is very impressive. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a bit of a film buff. So Pretty Baby, um, I studied uh, a lot of production design off of because mm -hmm. I, I did a uh, short film that was based in the 1800s as well. Oh, excellent. Yeah, it was cool. So, so you appropriated the... the, the I, I was inspired by... Yes, inspired by. <laughs> we'll, we'll use that, yes. Yeah, okay. So now with, with Richard Prince... He actually took a photo of the magazine and blew it up as his own fine art object. And it caused controversy because of the imagery, not so much for the fact that he had appropriated it. Um, this was in the middle of Brooke Shields had a very long running lawsuit where she had said that she didn't, she never gave her permission to be photographed at that age. Um, she had a lawsuit going against her mother, I believe, who had okayed it, and she sued and rightfully won access to the negatives that produced this particular photo shoot. Cool. And so this is a good thing. And this there was a, another case very recently for a French actress um, named Ava um, Ionesco, whose um, mother was Irina Ionesco, whose um, father was Eugene Ionesco, the um, the surrealist poet. Okay. And so. Um, Arena and Ava had a very tumultuous relationship, and um, and she sued and claimed um, irreparable harm to her entire existence and upbringing. Sued the father, the mom. Oh, the mom. Yeah, and and it took like forever, like yeah. thirty years. And well, how are you going to prove something like that? He, well, I mean, her her stuff was a bit racier, let's say, than than Brooke Shields. Oh yeah, it was. It was. I, I, I'm. I'm unfamiliar. Yeah, it was on the definitely on the edge of questionable taste. Um, it, she was very much dolled up to look like a sex object, uh -huh. and was often photographed. It wasn't like one or two. It was books, wow. books and books of her mother's photography starring oh, her. So her mother would yes. shoot her, and then what? Sell these photos, these books, uh, yeah, and have exhibitions of of wow. you know um, under under an art pretense. Yes, and you're talking like platinum gel prints that were probably thousands of dollars then, and are probably tens of thousands of dollars now. Oh, surely. Now she won her lawsuit, and it took a very very long time. Um, I spoke to her about it in two oh no 1997 wow you got an in congratulations man you you get the i gotta say like a little <laughs> producer side note uh, you get the most amazing interviews i i've <laughs> never uh i've never seen it uh especially on a podcast format but yeah oh and i i guess i should say this for people that don't know um in a lot of the late 90s um i was on the ricky rackman radio show here in los angeles gotcha. at klsx i was flickhead i was their their film critic oh okay. um and i did the drive time slot we had the largest audience in los angeles and and so it was it was a great fun job i love working with ricky i had worked with him at the um at the cat house when it was the nightclub that all the hair metal bands played at wow. when i was when i first come to la but the um my meeting with um miss ionesco was actually set up through a film licensing friend and she had a film that she had released as an adult that was available and we looked at it for possible acquisition and she owned the film she was the producer and so we had this conversation it's very pleasant um and we're about the same age she's a little bit older than me i believe mm -hmm. and so i had no idea that she had been this kind of child model phenomenon in europe yeah. at, at this at this earlier time and she she did seem like really upset by it now, when she got the rights back to all the imagery, she actually released a book 
yeah. of her own, of her own photographs from that era. Uh, and so it kind of maybe belittles the idea of it being damaging, but you could say that it was an empowerment now that she was in control of her own exploitation. Yeah, I, w I would say that it's more of a working through it. Right. Uh, you know, confronting the, the trauma and then working through it to make it your own. Yeah, and I embrace that. And I, sure. I, I'm completely supportive of you know, whatever she could get back from what was uh, yeah, do an unpleasant it. experience. <laughs> get your bread, girl. <laughs> <laughs> so now when you talk about appropriation now, and Richard Prince was also recently sort of exposed by his Instagram show where he printed these large format images of other people's Instagram feeds where he would comment on their page something completely ridiculous. And what he would post proved that he had no idea really what Instagram was. So rather than it being the usage of social media to connect in a real way with a youth audience, it just showed what a chasm he had between that youth culture that he was trying to exploit and his own ideas about what that medium was. So was the point of the uh, taking of the images was the point actually his comment rather than what he was appropriating? I think that would be his point. Gotcha. In court, that um, that by him having his own quote at the bottom of it, he was adding value to someone else's photograph. Now, he did not approach anybody for permission and just printed them. Sure. So one of the victims, if there, if you will, sure. are targets of his appropriation uh -oh. were the suicide girls. Oh, hey, of course. And so they went and they printed the exact same image that he used. His were selling at the Gagosian Gallery in New York City for $90,000. They made theirs available for ninety. Nice. So I bought a couple. Yeah, as as uh, good move, Suicide Girls. And they're, they're perfect kind of bootlegs, like perfect bootlegs. And I love that they did this. The, the notion of being targeted for appropriation... And rather than cause a big, ugly fight to cause marketplace confusion mm -hmm. via producing the exact same object, which you also have a right to do if he has a right to do it. Sure, because it was yours originally. Yeah, has a kind of amazing quality. So we digress and we Sorry. go back to the original um, focus of this kind of appropriation and we look at Roy Lichtenstein. So I came across... Right. Oh my gosh, maybe 15 years ago, yeah. a website, and I don't think it exists as the site that it was then, but I can give everybody the name of the man who set it up, and the guy's name is David Barcelo, and that's spelled B-A-R-S-A-L-O-U, and he put together a painstakingly assembled collection of most source images that became Roy Lichtenstein paintings. That's awesome. The to actual me. panels, the actual comics, the information about who the the penciler and inker were, if 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 possible. Yeah, that's awesome because uh, I have to say, as a as a casual observer, I'm I'm not in the art world uh, to your level, but uh, obviously I'm I'm familiar with Roy Lichtenstein, and I've I've often wondered um, as I as I gaze upon these comic panels, clearly comic book panels, mm -hmm. uh, where, what are these from? You know, right, they, right. They, they look like they're taken from something else. They are unattributed. And um, recently, actually, um, there's a group of, of kind of public artists. I won't say they're graffiti artists because I, I think they would object to the word graffiti in the context of what they do. But I also think that people who consider themselves graffiti artists wouldn't consider the Panic Collective. It's Panic with a K Collective. Um, would not consider them graffiti artists, but more... Um, outdoor public art, 
guerrilla artists or something, you know, art terrorists maybe. Oh, it's, I guess I, I don't, I don't know where to draw the distinction, but that's an interesting concept. And we'll get into that for oh, sure. Because sure, yeah. I think that's ripe for the discussion. Yeah. But um, they replied to a post on Instagram by Art Forum Magazine, which is arguably the most important um, contemporary art publication, you know, in in the United States and and therefore probably the world. And they ran a retro um, post, like a, a throwback Thursday or a flashback Friday post, featuring them putting Roy on the cover of their magazine back in 1962. And they ran his title. And the Panic Collective went in and ran um, kind of a shame on you and gave the actual artist's name. And it was a John, I believe it was a John Buscema drawing. Cool. But if it wasn't John Buscema, you know what? It was Irv Novik. It was an Irv Novik drawing. And they, um, they're like, this should be after, you know, Irv Novik because he was never attributed by Roy Lichtenstein. Now, at least when Richard Prince has appropriated an Instagram image, you have on that appropriated image now blown up to six feet tall or whatever, the name of the account that he took it from. So you've got kind of an automatic credit right there. I mean, I don't know that that was important to Richard Phillips, but he understood at least to the degree that he understood what social media is, that that was part of the what made it recognizable. I admire what's going on. It, it 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 sounds like kind of art street justice. Yeah, I, I like it. Yeah, so they they called out art form, which is kind of a dangerous thing to do in the art world. Sure, but um, it made me think back to David's page, and I started to go through, and I want to draw attention to a couple of names here because I think that most people assumed that. What Roy was doing was paying tribute to the art form of comic book art and perhaps doing his own drawings along the lines of something that you might see in a comic book. I don't think that the public at the time was even actively aware that these were straight lifts of panels from comics. Yeah, I, when I first saw them, um, much younger, yeah. uh, I, I assumed that he did these himself. I did and, too. Yeah. I did too. And I, I loved Roy's stuff. Yeah, it's very iconic. Because it was, to me, elevating comic book art to art. I, I just, well, for me, it was, um, like, like I said, I was pretty young at the time, but I, it was just so poppy and, mm -hmm. and the colors were so interesting. And, and, this, and this, the stills that he chose, the panels, were so dramatic mm. that I, it, it, as a young boy, I couldn't help but wonder, you know, what, what are these stories about? What are these women crying about and, you know, whatever. And I thought it was amazing. Yeah. 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 And, and yeah, there was, as especially, I guess, definitely more so in the 1960s and 70s and even 80s than today, that um, most adolescent boys reading comics would have no idea what no. a romance comic looked no, like. No, no way. <laughs> yeah, they didn't really even exist much after 1974. Yeah, I, I was definitely catching the tail ends of them, like in the Sunday comics, yeah. as, as I was a, a very small child, and you know, Mary Worth and all that stuff. Yeah, and and the um that's and the Sunday funnies aspect of it. And I think a lot of people thought that they were actually dailies or or Sunday oh, comics. I, I certainly did. Yeah, and and didn't realize that they were certain panels from existing comic books of the era, like Modern Romance, yeah. Millie the Model, 
Um, there was a lot of stuff from um, the war comic Star Spangled War stories. Um, you know, so there's Joe Kubert pieces that he took. Oh, that's awesome. I've never heard of any of this stuff, so this is fascinating. Yeah, and I mean, you know, beyond Jack Kirby, and there were a lot of Jack Kirby pages, sure. and you would expect that there would be. And like I said, there were some John Buscemas. There was William Overgaard, who's kind of a, um, not many people remember him, because he was one of those kind of nameless, faceless, grinder, workman, you know, uh, journeyman comic book guys that worked at a studio with like 10 other artists, and you'd have you know, maybe Joe and Jack would be in the office and maybe John and Marie Severin. And, and of course, John Severin was somebody whose artwork was lifted by Roy Lichtenstein. Wow. Um, we already said Irv Novick. Mike Sikowski, you know, the guy that was behind a lot of the DC um, comic stuff. He was doing Justice League. He was doing um, a lot of their superhero team books. He was doing Brave and the Bold. But he also, just like Jack, was a journeyman who could pick up work in any genre. I think this is one of the things that I find most fascinating about your show is you shine these spotlights onto the lesser known uh, grunt workers, since you you called them that that yeah. um, that I've never that I certainly don't know. Um, but you're 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 like no no they've actually formed a, a tremendous basis of what you're a fan of. Like um, uh, your interview with Stephen Bissett was oh, yeah yeah uh, I mean blew me away. I was like what worked on it. Watchmen and I mean I'm sorry yeah Swamp Thing what? Yeah. who's this guy oh he's amazing like, yeah yeah and you know and and of course he was you know he would say that he was raised on the shoulders mm-hmm. of people like Joe Kubert and he went to Joe's school he was part of the first graduating class from the Joe Kubert school yeah it's, it's fascinating yeah and so you know Tony Abruzzo I think maybe the most famous of the Liechtenstein um, steals were the Tony Abruzzo ones. And Tony Abruzzo is almost completely forgotten by comic book historians. I've never heard of him. Yeah. I mean, he was he was really a grinder, and he was a guy that worked on the titles nobody else wanted to draw. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was working, and, you know, Dick Giordano, who was who became very famous. You know, he was a, a vice editor, or, or, sorry, a vice president at DC Comics. He was in charge of Charlton at a certain point. I think he was even at Gold Key. Um, and... Dick was a guy that could ape a lot of styles, and he came before, if I'm not mistaken, people like Neil Adams. And so there's an era there where you can't tell Dick stuff from Neil's. Wow. I mean, it's that much. But Tony Abruzzo was also, like, he could do a house style. And, you know, we know Dick, and Dick was, uh, his contribution to comics was tremendous. And we don't know, we don't remember Tony Abruzzo as much. We definitely don't remember William Overgaard as much. And then there's Bob Grant and, and Bob Totten, you know, T-O-T-T-E-N. You know, these guys worked as a team the way that Simon and Kirby worked as a team. And neither one of them, to my knowledge, ever really went solo. They just would, they'd work on stuff. Do you think that was a reflection of the time that they were in? Like they didn't really push for people to go solo. Whereas nowadays it's like, oh, you're you're doing well, man. Like go solo. I don't think they were even ever credited. Wow. You know, it was such a different world. Sure. You know, and especially in the romance market, I've got some Kirby pages that I've picked up over the years from the romance comics. Um, I kept one specifically that when I bought it, it was attributed to to Vince Coletta, mm-hmm. and certainly Vince did pencil. But if you know. You know a Vince Coletta page from a Jack Kirby page, <laughs> and you know a, a page that maybe Vince before Vince started erasing the lines in the superhero work because he was taking on twenty titles a month. Yeah, um, and Jack wouldn't let him do it, and Jack hated working with him after a while because he was like, "Why do I bother spending this time if this guy you know, is an inker? Is just going to do the bold line?" 
but mm-hmm. I have a page from one of the romance comics, which is was obviously a huge influence on uh, Dave Stevens. The girl, the bust line, everything about it just looks like Dave. And when I saw this in a pile of, of pages from um, uh, a comic book art vendor years ago, I, I had to have it. It's it's something that I, I I hope I keep until I die, and I hope I live a long time. Yeah, you know. But the um, it, it just reflected to me how versatile Jack was in being able to do all these different styles. And because that was the era, a lot of these guys were like that. Joe Orlando, another guy whose work was stolen by um, Roy Lichtenstein. And, you know, he was one of the, the mainstays at, at EC Comics. He did the, the Tales from the Black Freighter pages in The Watchmen. Oh, wow. Yeah. And is kind of, and actually Tony Leno, I think, is the guy that helped bring over all the Filipino talent in the 1970s that helped work at, um, at DC, Marvel, and, of course, at Warren Publications. Mm-hmm. You know, doing the deep page stories for um, Creepy and Eerie and Vampirella and that type of thing. I have a question. Sure. So the Roy clearly was ripping off massive amounts of people, and they all worked for relatively big name comic book companies. At some point, did did none of these comic book companies notice or care about Roy's blatant appropriation? As far as I know, none of them ever contacted him. Huh. And remember too that the people at the legal departments at comics in the 1950s and, and especially early 60s and especially pre-superhero artwork where you had Stan Lee, you know, um, editor, editor-in-chief at Marvel after it had switched over from Timely that the the legal team was really there to control the artists and freelancers who worked for them. Oh, so it wasn't so much about intellectual property. Except when there was a claim on title and it didn't happen too often and it tended to happen a lot later. So you have the famous Marvel lawsuit against um, Captain Marvel, which was a character that existed before Marvel Comics, but it had gone out of print for a while. And when DC tried to bring back Captain Marvel, then um, Marvel tried to, to file suit, which I believe they lost. Huh. But when Marvel Man, which had been published um, and then over in England when Alan Moore revived the character, when that was coming to the U.S. through an independent comics company, and it, I can't, was it first or was it Comico? Eclipse. I think Eclipse were, was putting out Marvel Man as part of their package deal with a bunch of um, English titles. They were putting it out in in, in, in America. Oh, in America. Yeah, okay. so it got released as Miracle Man because right. Marvel sued. And that's what caused that big fiasco and hold up on that title for like 20 years when... Um, yeah, and I think I read they just re-released it. Now, I don't know that Neil Gaiman ever finished the story because I don't think he ever got paid for the 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 last portion that he wrote. So I'm not sure if that was completed, if they came to a deal on that. And I have to they, admit that I'm a little bit out of the loop on I this I think one. that's what I, I – unfortunately, I can't uh, – you can't quote me on it. But mm-hmm. I think that I just read that they just finished it. Okay. That because, and, they, and I read the article because um, – I, obviously, I've never heard of Miracle Man. But mm-hmm. um, they were all saying that it's one of the greatest things ever written yeah. and it's one of the greatest things ever made and stuff. And they just re-released – I think they were – 
releasing it as a either a trade paperback or a four volume set. They did individual comics. Yeah. And, and then they're binding them, I think, yeah, in four individual um trade paperbacks. And the original writer of this retelling of the story is Alan Moore and mm -hmm. the original artist was Gary Leach. Brilliant stuff. Yeah. And then Mark Buckingham took over for Gary Leach and, and Rick Veach came and did some fill in issues. So it was a lot of the same guys that had been working together at, at DC. That's and, cool. And um then Alan got frustrated and decided to kind of leave off. Well, and, he, he's Alan Moore. He lives. He, he lives in the mists. He, you know? He's a wizard. Yeah. And um, so you've got um this weird opportunity where um they ask you know well, who who's going to take this over? And I believe Grant Morrison wanted to throw his name in the hat. And he I know that he um has said that he felt that Alan Moore blocked him from taking over the character, but um. At some point, Neil Gaiman came into the picture, and he told a very different story. That came out in that era where I'd first fallen out of comics, and I didn't get to read those until years later. And those issues are so much rarer because the circulation had gone down that they're generally selling for hundreds of dollars or something per issue in, in, in you know mint or near mint. Wow. And so it took me a while to, to catch up, and I didn't catch all the way up because it hadn't all come out yet which is the most frustrating thing right, you know, yeah. ever, when right? You're, when you're waiting and, and searching. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. And now I know what the, you know, the, the Trekkies felt like who felt, mm -hmm. you know, after that original series that, you know, there was unresolved issues. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of hanging. Yes. Yeah. So the, um, what brings us full circle on this is that the companies that own the copyright technically to these pages could not be bothered. Yeah, fascinating to me because uh, in in today's world that would that would never happen. Money yeah. money to be made. Yeah. yeah, I mean, and even if it's not going to the artist, the company. Yeah, that when I said money to be made, yeah. I, I meant to the company. Oh, yeah. of course, of course. You would see, you know, um, some weird little copyright line below it if if that was something that you could still sue for. Now there is kind of a wild west mentality to a, a high degree of appropriation, but I think the court of public opinion weighs in. And at a certain point, if the court of public opinion judges you guilty, you are guilty, and that has an effect. Now, if you're Damien Hurst and you've already made half a billion dollars, it doesn't really matter. And when he's losing his suits, he's losing a lot of money, and he's losing it out of court. And I'm not sure how much satisfaction the artists get, but they're certainly making more money than they ever did if they win their cases. Sure. In the case of something like what Richard Prince is doing, it's a little harder to kind of aim at because he is changing it ever so slightly. And he's already won a very famous lawsuit, which people felt like, oh, well, now we can never sue for this. And now this other case that's coming up is maybe shining a light on the fact that, well, you know what? If you steal my art, I can go after you. And there's been like a lot of cases against... Um, not Hot Topic. And now I feel bad that I've said that because that will be the brand that sticks in everybody's head. <laughs> but And maybe they're guilty. I, I, it's not who I'm thinking of. But um, Urban Outfitters has been sued many times by artists who feel that they've stolen their design and just drawn it differently. And if you're talking about a high con, like a t-shirt is inherently a high concept item. I mean, it's the idea is what sells the shirt, maybe not so much the graphic. Well, sure. I mean, anytime I go to a concert or a sporting event or anything, there's somebody who has has either blatantly stolen mm -hmm. uh, the the logo or, or or ever so slightly altered it, and they're selling them like right there, twenty bucks a pop because they know, you know yeah, these will sell. And then there's like that. I mean, when I first came out to L.A., 
you'd see people selling bootleg shirts outside the Palladium sure. or something. Actually, Gaston and I used to um, always try and pull a free shirt out of those guys. Oh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> but the, um, and they'd give them up actually half the time. But the um, and that's kind of a whole different thing. Now they could defend themselves in a way, unless the the band or the um, the holding company sued them on a marketplace confusion type of lawsuit, which is similar to a suit that Walt Disney um, Corporation filed against the creator of the Air Pirates comic book in the 1970s. And that kind of came to right. a standstill after 40 years and bankruptcy. Well, when, you go, when you go against Disney, it's, it's, it's a tough battle. But he waited him out. You know, that's the funny thing about I, that I'm, guy. I'm impressed. He waited him out. I, I think he felt like after three years and one bankruptcy, he was like, I'm never going away. And I, I, he never expected it to take that long, but he felt like three years was past his breaking point. Sure. And then it just kept going on and going on and going on. And he's like, I'm nope, not going anywhere. And it went to arbitration and they had tried to say, um, you know, plagiarism. And then it was judged to be a work of artistic merit, even though it was a pornographic parody. Um, and so it, it fell under satire. And then they tried to say network uh, marketplace confusion because the cover was basically identical to the Walt Disney's comics and stories cover. But 10 years had passed, so the cover price was different, and the odds of there being this comic on a rack where children could access it was no. null. It was not going to happen. So they couldn't win on that, and they, they kept coming at them with all these different ideas, and finally they exhausted every possible thing, and what they could try to go on the very final one, it's a very hard case to win, especially against a company that size, is damaged reputation. And um, it ended up going to arbitration. And, and as I understand it, and forgive me if I'm not to the letter correct, the judgment was that it was a matching foul of sorts. That if he agreed to never do it again, then there would be no recourse. And one of the, the rulings of the arbitration was that each party had to take care of their own legal fees. Oh, wow. So that protected him from a potential, what? $300 million? You know, what, what does Disney well, what pay for was lawyers? His, what were his legal fees? I mean, you know, probably in the in the tens of millions over 40 years. Yeah, right. That's what I mean. So. But theirs. Oh, oh um, I'm sure that would, you know. Yeah, a team of lawyers working oh, around the clock for 40 yeah. years. It's, it's like, how much money did Titanic make? But the, <laughs> um, you know, the, there's hope now, at least to an extent, that you do have a type of recourse in the court if a corporation takes your stuff. And even if you sign a contract, and I hope that everybody who has ever signed a contract and if you are, are involved in wanting to do comics or you, you have any kind of agreement deal with, with a company, a first look deal, and this, is, this happens to musicians all the time where they sign a deal memo and they feel like they are in, entrapped by, the, by signing a deal memo. And it's yes and no, that the court will always side with the party that did not draft the contract on any non-specific, unarticulated points. So if there's any point of contention and you didn't write the contract, they'll side with you over any mis miscommunication. Almost always. That's that's uh, reassuring. Yeah. And, yeah. and I mean, this has been a good protection in a lot of copyright claim lawsuits that a company has a general policy, and then the law changes, but they still send out that same contract because they haven't changed it, which means that that 
contract is not legally binding because it wasn't legal when it was signed. Mm. And that has been a really a really good escape. Now the companies are a little bit more adept at it. And when you see that there are major lawsuits that arguments that, like, say, DC used to use on why a character created as a version of another character, like if you create Super Kid or... Um, and and in that respect, Super Billy Goat, <laughs> that because it's a an offshoot character of Superman, you aren't entitled to. They've changed their ruling, so now that a different reason protects in the same way that the old reason would not have. Wow, it's very confusing. And so there are a lot of people that are on the payroll who have created characters over the years that are like, "Well, wait a minute, you just sent me this different reason for this contract to not pay me." Then you sent me for this other reason on this other contract, and they're the opposite. So you're paying me on one of these. Yeah. Which one are you going to pay me right, on? Right, right. And then they stop answering the phone, and then they end up settling out of court, I imagine. But the, um, this has been pretty common in the last couple of years. Now, when we look at the the great crime that Roy Lichtenstein has created against Jack Kirby, William Overgaard, Bob Grant, and Bob Totten, Irv Novick, Mike Sikowski, Tony Abruzzo, Dick Giordano, um, you know, ad infinitum, Tony Orlando, all these guys, there is no recourse. I was going to say, but half these guys, I, I, I more can't half these guys gonna are dead. Get, I can't believe he's going to get away with it. And he's dead. That's crazy. You know, it's like there's there's no, there's nowhere for this to go. So the the Roy Lichtenstein estate or whatever can't dole out post-mortem payments to the other estates? I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know that, that there's a precedent for it. Maybe now that Jack Kirby has come to terms Jack Kirby's estate has come to terms with Marvel, accepted an out of an out of court settlement. That that window opens again for the possibility of someone to say, "Hey, I own that image." Not just you know with jackets, the characters, it's the creation of the characters. But since Roy's milieu was to take specific iconic images, there should still be that possibility open. And certainly, they didn't even enter into a contract with him. Sure, I mean not even a verbal one, but didn't. Doesn't that also go back to what you were saying earlier about how since Roy blew it up and uh, changed uh, the the medium on which it was printed, was that was that changing it enough to be art as opposed to a ripoff? The biggest problem that the estates face is the statute of limitations. That the statute of limitations for when these works were created is long ago eclipsed. Oh, because now they're in public domain. No, not that they're in public domain, but that you only had three years to file a claim. Oh, oh! so the artists had three years from the time that Roy did it to file a claim, right. but they didn't, and so now... On the original paintings, but that doesn't necessarily hold over to newly produced prints of Roy Lichtenstein's paintings, which copy, say, uh, Irv Novick's drawings. Right. So, so there could be, if new works are produced based upon that image... A little bit of leeway, and and we'll see if anybody does anything about it. I think that the public shaming of so if Roy, Roy Lichtenstein is probably re, where it's really going to cause a difference. Yeah. So if if Roy uh, if the, Roy's estate unleashes new uh, a new run of mm-hmm. his prints, then they can then the other estates can attack that now. Foreseeably, yes, because it is now a new work based on an old theft. This is wow, complicated. Yeah, I mean, yeah. this is why you know law books lawyers. Are so thick. Yeah. Do it. <laughs> They've invented a new language to charge you to read you common sense. <laughs> but the um, and no offense to any lawyers, the um, 
for people who are unaware, and this ties very much into this, and especially the idea of comic book art as fine art, not just in the acceptable sense that there are pieces that are derived from that that are considered fine art by every reasonable human being on earth. We've also got a show that opened last week at uh, California State University in Northridge, uh, curated by Sam Humphreys, called Comic Book Apocalypse, The Graphic World of Jack Kirby. And it brings together a lot, a treasure trove of every different aspect of work that Jack produced, much of it original. Um, you get to see original pages that he drew. Um, I know that there are certain people I know that have key pages were contacted to, to loan them to the exhibition. I got a hold of Sam a little bit too late to um, include any of the stuff that we owned. But uh, we are definitely helping to get the word out about this because Jack was the king. Uh, Jack was a very gracious man. Um, I used to go visit him. in, in Nor He lived in Northridge, you know, for a good f maybe 40 years. Oh, um, wow. So after he moved out of New York, he, he went straight to California. And you and used to go hang. I, I didn't go hang. I would ride three or four buses from Hollywood to go visit Jack to buy comic book art because I'd heard that he had just gotten all the art, the original art pages, not all of it, but the bulk of the pages from Marvel that he had sued to get. If you remember um, back in the day, Eclipse Comics had a, um, an ad on the back of every comic book that said, Marvel Comics is celebrating its 25th anniversary. What about Jack? <laughs> and, um, and they sort of sued and shamed. They was like, okay, well, you're not going to pay me for my creations. At least give me back the artwork. Interesting. Yeah, because he didn't even have the pages to sell. They kept them. Well, right, because at that point, you were work for hire, right? Or I don't know. It, there's a whole, there's a, whole a, yeah. a lot of reasons why he actually was able to settle out, maybe because he wasn't a payroll guy. Gotcha. And that you're not bound by those rules, and therefore there's a whole different thing. It's a whole different aspect. Interesting. But um, without getting too deep into that issue, and I'm, I'm sure we'd love to do a show with Sam, and we'd love to do a, a show with uh, Jack's granddaughter, and I'm sure at, at some point we will. I know that she... Uh, just moved to college and is um, we were going to do a show with her a couple of days ago, and uh, she had to up and move. I think um, I think she's uh, in Memphis. Oh wow! She just moved, but um, and she's been really carrying the torch for the Jack Kirby estate. And yeah, we've we've gotten uh, several uh, messages from her. She's she's uh, in in talks. Over yeah, there. very very sweet girl. Yeah, and also um, very close to the Hero Initiative, who are you know. Uh, a charity that I've I love working with. I have worked with. I got to spend a day with Russ Heath, you know, driving him from appointment to appointment, hearing all of his amazing stories about life at the Playboy Mansion, <laughs> and uh, and a lot of other stuff that's probably not uh, fit for a podcast. Sure, sure. But um, or not our our PG rated podcast. Um, but the the strength of having a show like this is another second reinforcement that the actual medium of comic book art of sequential art is fine art in and of itself it's a point that built this podcast you know the podcast is called pod sequentialism because my show was called pop sequentialism when i when i got together the modern stuff and it was the first exhibition of its type it was in 2011 and every time you have an amazing exhibition of the classics it just reignites the flame for modern work and and vice versa whenever you see a heritage auction and uh, a McFarlane cover sells for $675 million. That's got to be good news for a really classic page. And I'm not bagging on, on Todd McFarlane. I think he was a great penciler. But I'm amazed that he holds the current record for comic book art cover. Yeah, it's fascinating. I, I think a lot of that is just he 
through some magic whimsy developed such an incredible cult following mm. that you know the fanaticism is is what buoys him not to say that he's not talented but yeah. i mean you know there are others yeah yeah i mean i would certainly rather own the cover of avengers number one right you know or even sure. mad magazine number two sure you know like yeah. you know going back to you know the, the ec era and that whole unsung crew of amazing artists um but you know the auction prices are, are an interesting thing and, and they help to motivate the market but they also help build an awareness for the market at large i've always said if you buy an original comic book art page, you're not just buying that page. You're buying the entire history of the character. You're buying the entire relationship between the artist and writer that made that page. If it's an old enough page, it's got the lettering on it too. It was probably inked by somebody else. You're talking about a one-of-a-kind collaboration, the likes of which just really generally does not exist otherwise in fine art. Yeah, and I think this lends credence to your point about comics being fine art um, because I know that several friends of mine uh, have, uh, you know, they've been reading a comic or whatever, and there's one panel or one particular page that has, you know, really connected with them, really moved them on some deep level, and they they literally exacto it out, and they'll they'll frame it and yeah. and hang it in their house and be like, that's that's the one that changed my life, put me on this new path, or helped me get over my divorce or whatever. I don't know. Cutting a panel out of a page gives me the willies. Yeah, but I, I, well, was, I uh, you know. I respect them for doing that, but that, that's what we would call a holy grail image. You know, that sure. um, when you're collecting comic art, there's only one of that. You know, that there's only one original pencil page. And even if you can get that artist to recreate it, it's not the same. And it's it's that's more common nowadays. They They never have the same panache as the original. But that you have to be so lucky that if you're reading a comic book and you come across this one page, which is life-changing, if you if if you didn't get that page that month, like the day that comic came out, right. you'll probably never get it. And if you get a chance at it again, that's like a once in a lifetime yeah. opportunity. Yeah. And I've, I, we've all had these, you know, we've all had these moments where we had our shot to buy something and we passed and we'll never <laughs> see it again. But, um, none more so, and perhaps none more soul destroying than missing out on Superman number one. Yeah, or or you know, like like I say, if it was even like a, a page from, it could be a page from X twenty three or whatever. You know, it could sure. be like just that page that you love that was that you remember from the first comic you ever bought, and you dropped the comic and you picked it up to that page, and it just transfixed you. You know, it could be for me. You know, I think the first comic that I remember owning as like its own thing was Werewolf by Night number thirty two. You know that that Moon Knight cover. Yeah, and. And keeping it and finding it, and then years later when I, I, I realized that comic books were collectible and saw an episode of Simon and Simon, and then I looked in the yellow pages for a bookstore that had comics listed in their ad, and I rode my bike further downtown than I'd ever ridden it before and found this this dumpy little store yeah. with these great guys that were just a couple years older than me arguing about, you know, whether or not Swamp Thing was the greatest comic book <laughs> ever written. And there was like Swamp Things in the wall, and there was like... Was it during the Stephen Bissett run? It was right fresh. There yeah. You go. So like, I think there's only six issues out, and I, I kind of quietly walked over to the S's, and I picked up these comics, and I brought them up, and, and this guy's like, he's like, oh, you don't need this one. You need these ones. Because it was in the middle of the run. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know? And, uh, and then I found out, I saw they had a flyer, you know, like on this old, like, 
you you should get like weird colored paper stocks for cheaper and so like comic stores would put their flyers in like blue or pink or yellow paper yeah and um it was like announcing that there was this drawing a swamp thing by steve Bissett. and it's like he was going to be signing at this comic store i was like oh i gotta go to that and I brought my, my Swamp Things back to have him sign, and I was obsessed. But I noticed that in one of the comics, he'd, drew, he'd drawn this marquee of um, a movie theater marquee, and it had a poster for Twitch of the Death Nerve, which <laughs> is a Mario Bava film that was released on, on video oh. as Bay of Blood, which I had just watched. Oh, wow. Like a week before on what VHS. A what a moment. And then um, Steve asked me to write a new forward for the um, second publication of – his book, um, Teen Angels and New Mutants. This is much later. Yes, yeah, yes. Okay. My, this is I like, got, like I got you. two weeks ago. And I, I went back and I looked at that comic because I still have it. And I realized that the other side of the marquee of that same movie theater was Africa Adio, which is a movie that I worked on for DVD. No way. 12 years earlier. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah, I'm like... It's so strange that this this which had been such a pivotal comic book for me. Yeah. I and I and I totally forgot that that was there. Sure. And I end up working on this film. I worked on that box set for like a year. It was the um, Mondo Kane box set and uh, Africa Dio was was um Africa Blood and Guts was the poster that he had redrawn and that was the American title this this cut version of it. And that is my favorite film in that box set and I had completely forgotten until I went back to research it. Yeah. I mean, this is the great thing about comics, right? Is that we're all connected in that way. Yeah, I, I, I do think that one of the glorious things about um, when you when you buy something and own it, you can go back to it. And as you change, you go back and you find new things in it that, that you can connect to and relate to that you didn't when you were younger because you just didn't have enough world experience or whatever. But I, that's always been... Uh, one of my great joys is going back and uh, same same with films, watching films and, and or reading comics or books, mm -hmm. and just all of a sudden being like, oh yeah, now this is like so much more deeper. On you know, I'm getting all these nuances that never were shown to me before. So I, I'm a huge fan. Well, I don't know that I can end better than that, so I'm not even going to attempt to. Oh, okay. So we're going to stop our podcast on on uh, comics as fine art right there. We're going to pick up, I think, in the next episode on the impact of graffiti. On, uh, on comics and on pop art. But uh, until then, um, I thank Mason Booker, our in-house producer and audio engineer, for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me on. It's been a blast. This is Pod Sequentialism. I'm Matt Kennedy, and we'll see you next time. The school at Meltdown, where they teach you the skills to make comic books. Some of the current classes include creating comics, drawing comics for kids, and the art of inking. Coming soon, there will be classes for short film writing, drawing basics, and kids make zines. Go to meltcomics.com and enroll now.